this morning is a little different probably from the one that's in the bulletin. But I think it's up on the screen. Um, it'll be from Luke 1, 26-38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph the house of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her that was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, uh, good morning. We're uh, now in the 22nd Sunday of 24 in ordinary time. We're in our second week of this life with the saints here. Four, we have two more after this one until we begin Advent. So just, you know, get excited here. I know the scripture that I just read got you all brimming with excitement. Um, for Christmas, although I don't think we're reading this particular text um, for the fourth Sunday of Advent this year. This particular series that we've done, this is kind of now our second year, Life Among the Saints, it's kind of at heart uh, about turning our focus to remembering believers who lived their lives as a living sacrifice that pointed to Christ. As though the words of Scripture had walked out of the page and into and among our world. You ever heard that phrase, you might be the only Bible that somebody ever reads? My hope for this morning is just that as we meditate on these early Christians here, whose lives kind of tend to be this commentary on Scripture, it prepares you to be lifted in body and spirit and in mind to come to receive the Lord's grace here at this table. I know I kind of went through a couple different iterations this week of particularly where the focus would land for this morning, but what I decided is that this morning I want to tell you about a time that God rescued the church and nearly the entire known world through two mothers. First, a little context here. You all know if you came to um, Trunk or Treat, who I came as. Anyone? Oh, yeah, you came and you listened to me. I, I begged Sammy to come listen to my story. I couldn't get her. She didn't have time for it, so... No, Sammy, I know you wanted to come listen to it. Sammy did a great job, too. She taught youth group this last Wednesday. You should have been there. Um, but I came as Valerian. Valerian was a Christian martyr who died in the year 230. Christians, as many of you know, in the Roman Empire had sporadically and locally been persecuted for a number of reasons, oftentimes 
There was the accusation of incest because Christians would talk about being brothers and sisters, but then also be married. There was an accusation of cannibalism. This is my body and my blood. Christians were considered to be atheists and antisocial because they didn't participate in all the festivities. So they were always kind of an easy target and seemed kind of off-color to everybody else. But they weren't really, like I said, there wasn't kind of this, this very intentional, dynamic, um, empire-wide persecution until what was called the crisis of the third century. During that time, the Roman Empire had expanded about as far as it could possibly get, right? It kind of covered all these different regions of the world, and so its borders against all the nations that would kind of attack it. It was kind of, what do you call that, I guess? What's the word there? It's overextended, so to speak. It also, because it was in this period of time in which it had gotten so extended, there was a lot of internal dissension. There were multiple emperors at the same time, people claiming rivals, usurpers, all happening at that time and in that moment. So just 20 years after Valerian, in the year 2050, or right around there, would be what was called the Decian persecution. Decius, who was at that time sort of, again, one of the emperor claimants in that moment, decided to, you know how this works, right? If there's internal dissension within the empire and there's a lot of threats from without, how do you unite everybody? That's sort of a common technique there, right? Yeah, you find a common enemy. If you can get this common enemy, it'll sort of unite everybody. The Christians were the easy targets because they are the ones that were considered antisocial atheists. So you have this empire-wide persecution for the first time under D.C. And at that time, you have some of the greatest, what are called apostasies, these mass apostasies that happen, where they would have, all the Christians would be taken, and you'd have to either offer incense to the emperor and recant your faith, or potentially face suffering and execution. One of the greatest ones of those that we know of in all of history happened in the city of Carthage, as it went from being this almost primarily Christian to pagan overnight. I want to return to Carthage in a minute, but at that same time during the Decian persecution, in a place called Drepanon Bithynia, would be born a young woman who is relatively unnoticed to a lower class family whose name was Helena. And growing up, as she became a young woman, she met during that time again in the Roman Empire, there was a lot of conflict and chaos because you had so many emperors, there was so much instability. She'd meet a young military officer stationed in her city who was fighting in one of those wars whose name was Constantius. And when Constantius and Helena met, they were wearing identical bracelets. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing for either of them, but Constantius took it as the fact that they were actually intended to be soulmates. So they got married and ultimately had a son, whom they named Constantine. Constantius would be stationed at different battlefronts around the empire, and so kind of left his wife and his son there. Um, while he traveled around and fought the wars. Helena was left to raise Constantine on her own. Ultimately, one of the other rival emperors, his name was Maximian, would offer Constantius, his daughter, Theodora, in marriage to help advance his political, social, military career, and he'd leave Helena and Constantine. About that same time, Helena and Constantine then were taken as house guests to one of the other rival emperors at that time. His name was Diocletian. Diocletian held on to Helena and Constantine because it was an insurance policy in case Constantius 
came against him or tried to double-cross him. Helena, at this time, just wanted to make sure that her son had the best opportunity possible. She continued to love him, to care for him, to raise him, to make sure that he was, even as he was sort of a living hostage in this emperor's court, that he had the opportunity to grow up and be educated. It would be a couple years after that, at the urging of one of his own administrators, that uh, Diocletian would um, go to the omens, uh, the uh, oracle of Apollo at Didyma, and ask if he should continue to persecute the Christians. He'd get back a favorable omen, and at that time it was called the Diocletian persecution in 303. It was the worst persecution um, in the entirety of the Roman Empire. If you've ever kind of heard of people being executed or burned at the stake, churches being burned down, things being confiscated. Sometimes historians will talk about the Bible almost disappearing. It was all during Diocletian's persecution from 303 to about 313 that the church kind of underwent and almost was extinguished. Right after this persecution began, Constantine was about 30. And emperors who aren't friends to the people that they rule over tend also not to be friends to their allies. And so after several attempts on Constantine's life, Constantine and his mother were trying to find a way to get out of that emperor's court from being held under house arrest there. And Constantine had this plan where he got one night the emperor pretty intoxicated, pretty drunk, and got him to agree to send him to the farthest corner of the empire. Before the emperor got sober and took back what he had said there, Constantine had said, left the emperor's palace then, rode from post to post, equestrian post, as quickly as he could, hamstringing all the horses behind him so that when the emperor was actually sober, he would be able to get away from the emperor. He wouldn't be able to get him. Helena was able to just ghost everybody and disappear at that point and wait to see what would become of her son. Only after about a year of being on the, northern, on the northwestern territories of the Roman Empire, Constantine would be declared by the troops under him the Augustus of the West. But during that time, again, as kind of was standard practice by that point, there was multiple different claimants to emperor, multiple different claimants to different kinds of leaders, and they were facing a lot of attacks. One of the historians of the time said that every major city in the area during those couple years was looking from every side, wondering which way, which direction an army would come and loot them on their way to fight the battle against another usurping emperor. Constantine and his troops decided that it would be better for the empire to be unified than to collapse and descend into chaos. So they started moving southward from where they were in about France towards Italy, where one of the usurpers lived in Rome. Famously, if you know anything about Constantine's life, when he was on the other side of the Alps that would lead into Italy, all the people that had the omens told him and all of his advisors and counselors that it would be uh, a suicide mission to go into Italy and try to get all the way to Rome to reunify the Roman Empire. But Constantine disregarded it. He took a small advanced force across the Alps and against a heavily fortified city with his troops outnumbered and outmatched, took that. He asked all of his troops not to loot the cities because he knew what he needed to do at the end of all this. He did it once and again and again, and even after all the generals came against him, he kept winning 
so often that when Maxentius, who was at that time one of the claiming emperors in Rome, held games in, in the city as Constantine was approaching, the crowds chanted, Constantinus Invictus, Constantine Invincible. Maxentius worried about losing Rome and the empire, so he took all of his forces out of the city. The sort of famed Praetorian Guard who defend all the imperial troops. And Constantine landed up on one side of the battlefield, and Maxentius was on the other. Maxentius had just gone to, again, the same sort of pagan gods and the omens that had said that the enemy of the Romans would die. But Constantine also had a vision that night before the battle. And in the vision, in the dream, he saw a sign, which was an X and a line with a rounded top on it that said, in this sign, you shall conquer. Constantine knew in that moment that he and all the pagan gods before that he had kind of been faithful to in his life, he needed to be converted. And if there was going to be a victory won in this case, it was not going to be through the pagan gods, but through the God of the Christians. Ultimately, Constantine would go on to win that battle. And shortly thereafter, more importantly than that, he would broker what was called the Edict of Milan in 1313, which was such a massive shift that there would ever be a before and after for the church. Because what had made the Roman Empire at that point so effective and so powerful at persecuting the church and spreading into all these different territories would now become the means and the vehicle through which Christianity would spread. By 330, some 17 years later, Constantine would be the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. But more importantly, Helena, his empress mother, and now a devout Christian, would have just gone to be with her lord, having used all of those years, all of her power, all the resources of the imperial treasury to help reestablish, rebuild the name of the lord and use it for his people. It was the very next year in 331 that another woman would be born in the city of Tagaste, North, North Africa, just a couple miles there from Carthage, that city where that great apostasy had happened when Helena was born. This woman's name was Monica, and she was born in one of the last remaining Christian households there to strict parents. There's a couple stories told about Monica when she was younger. The first is that her parents wanted her to grow up with virtue. I don't know if any of you would have had or grown up into a household like this. And so what her parents did is they said that even if she wanted water between meals, they denied it. Because the idea was is that she needed to have a self-control and self-mastery, a self-discipline to be able to deny herself pleasures later in life and so be able to attain to virtue and living a life that was faithful to Christ. But there's another story told about her when she's younger, as sometimes happens in strict households. There's a lot of boundaries, and so transgressing, there's something about that that becomes thrilling. And when Monica was young, her parents would send her down into the cellar to go and get wine for whatever they needed. Wine was very common, of course, in North Africa at that time. They sent her down to get wine for a meal or something like that, and Monica had this habit of just tasting a little bit of the wine that she was taking out of the casket and bringing upstairs. Of course, over time, a little bit becomes a little bit more, 
becomes a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, until Monica was taking it by the cupfuls whenever she would come down to grab wine to bring it up to her parents. There would be a moment where a servant, having noticed that she was sneaking off and doing this, in a moment of anger, because they think Monica was probably trying to upbraid her, said to her that she was, the idiom wouldn't translate, but either a wino or an alcoholic. And Monica realized in that moment what had become of her, that she had taken this little temptation that had kind of spiraled out of control. In that moment, she immediately shifted. She stopped doing it. But she also realized from then on the brilliance of what her parents were doing and trying to help her grow up faithfully in the church. And I think two things that would remain with her from that particular story are first, that even sometimes when we know better, we all can still be tempted into sin. Maybe second, that no matter how long or how far you've been on one path, you can still switch to another one. When Monica finally got old enough to be married, she was married off to a man named Patricius, a man who was a local civil official in Tagaste and who was known for his temper, for his drunkenness, and for his infidelity. Monica would bear all these things ultimately patiently in the marriage, not because Monica was passive or because she was passionless. She, of course, knew that both from the culture and the way the household was set up, she was in no position to try to force Patricius to become somebody else. But she did know somebody that she could pray to, and that if God could redeem her and change her life, then he could do the same for Patricius in his life. And ultimately, in time, Patricius would be converted to the faith and be cured of all of those things of which he was known for. Monica would also have three children, of whom two of them, Perpetua and Navigus, would also share their mother's faith, as far as we know from childhood. But one of her sons was somewhat resistant. His name was Augustine. He was brilliant, by far it seems the most brilliant of all of their kids, the most brilliant in the area, and his parents made every effort to make sure that he got educated by the elite. And being educated by the elite, he had the same expectations that they did. Just go out, do the best, be the best, and do whatever you want. His father had hopes that his career would advance far beyond what his father had been able to accomplish in his life. And Augustine was exactly on course to do that, having won honors and awards in rhetoric, which he was studying. But that also meant that Augustine grew up full of envy and of pride and lust. Because he clawed for those honors and those awards. He took for himself a concubine. He immersed himself in all the obscene entertainment in the city of Carthage. It, of course, broke Monica's heart that she saw her son doing this, and she prayed for her son relentlessly. Augustine shrugged it all off as his mom's prudishness. She was just really uptight. She was really dour. Eventually, as uh, Pastor Jeff hinted at, Augustine got involved with the Manichaeans, which are kind of like Christians, but they're like a little stranger. You know those kind of sects? They sort of believe some of the things. Their promise is that it's like a perfectly rational faith. 
You know, their big thing, and Augustine writes so beautifully on this, is like, well, if God's like all-powerful and um, he's all-knowing, um, then why is it that the world still has sin in it? You know, why would God create in such a way? And so they kind of do away with that, and they have this, like, there's a world of light and darkness. Um, there's kind of a, a lot, of, I think there's like caverns of darkness and laser beams involved. Um, but Augustine really loved it, and part of the reason, and isn't this the reason sometimes people over and beyond logic, I think it's because they, one, had positions or a lot of mannequins and influential positions of which he cared about, and they kind of let him do what he wanted to do. Monica, when she heard that Augustine had become involved with the Manichaeans, was horrified. In fact, she was so disturbed by it that she kicked them out completely. She said, I don't want to have anything to do with you until you're done with them. This was her way of trying to wake Augustine up to It's kind of always a question when you draw that line exactly with somebody who's getting deeper and deeper to something that's not good for them. But while she does this, or just after she does this, she has a vision in a dream where she's standing on a pillar of faith. And in it, she sees this young man coming over to him. She's weeping for her son, Augustine. And the young man asks her, why are you weeping? And she says, it's for my son's impenitence, for his perdition, for his condemnation. And the young man says to her, you know, woman, you can be at peace. For where you are, there he will be also. Augustine later recalls Monica telling him this dream, to which again, he just kind of shrugs off and says, okay, sure, mom. But, uh, but Monica looks at him and with an intensity in her with an intensity in her eye says, no, the dream said that where I am, you will be also. And Augustine says that in that moment, while the dream didn't bother him, his mother's conviction that this dream meant something stirred something up in him that while it maybe seemed like it was just a bunch of overpiousness on his mom's part, there was something bigger in what she believed and that she knew something about what was going on in his life that he didn't. Monica would continue to stay with Augustine for some years in Carthage as he was working his school and try to keep him on the right path. And as I can only imagine happens in this case when you're with a family member where the, the, the convictions are extremely different, sometimes you have these intensive arguments and sometimes there are these just long periods of just kind of coexisting. And they would be in that state for some years until finally Monica would go in desperation to one of the Christian leaders in the area maybe in our context would be called a district superintendent, sometimes referred to as a bishop. And she would go to this guy and she would say, please, please talk to my son. Take him on the right path. Talk some sense into him. To which this particular Christian leader, knowing Augustine said, your son isn't going to be able to hear it. He's in his 20s. He knows everything right now. But Monica still begged and said, please, please talk to my son. I really, I want to see him. Christian, faithful Christian. To which then the Christian leader replied and said, you know, when I was younger, when I was his age, I was led astray by the Manichaeans. Eventually, I saw through the error of their ways and I came back to the faith. Augustine will surely return to the faith. But Monica wouldn't let up. It says that she was like gripping this man, just wouldn't let go of his leg or something. So he's like trying to get away from this woman. 
And finally, in frustration, says, Away, woman! It is impossible that the son of so many tears should perish. Something that Monica would remember and retell again and again in the years later, that even though this man had probably said it in just a quick moment, she heard it as this oracle, this promise from God about ultimately what would become of her son. When Augustine was 28, he wanted to sail to Rome to advance his career. He knew that this was the place that if you really wanted to go, if you really wanted to make it as a career, as a teacher of rhetoric here, he had to go. Monica was very fierce in her opposition of him going because she knew, granted the city and the reputation of it, that he was just going to get caught up in vanity, ambition, lust, the kinds of things that have already been steering him away from the faith. Augustine, as he recounts this, says at one point his mother so fiercely opposed him that he went, he tried to go down to the docks to get into the boat and she just wouldn't let go of his arm. So Augustine came up with this plan. He was going to go to Rome whether or not his mother liked it. So he finally told her, I'm going to wait for a little bit. I just want to see a friend of mine go off and we're waiting for favorable winds and then I'm going to see him off on his ship and I'll be back. So Monica went back and during the middle of the night, Augustine boarded a ship and he sailed away. So that when his mother, Monica, finally woke up, she was without a trace of the son that she had prayed for so earnestly all those years. And this is part of what I love about this story so much. The miracle of a mother's love. She didn't despair and she didn't give up. It would take Monica more than a year, finally, to get kind of everything ordered so that she could get passage, the winds were favorable, she could leave everything and trust it to the care of others. But when she finally did, she sailed off to Rome in search of her son. Said that when she was on that ship, you guys all know that it could be dangerous sometimes to sail in the Mediterranean. The, the weather at that point was so adverse, the storm so intense that the sailors were all despairing for their lives, and that Monica was the one going around and comforting the sailors. I promise you probably all know somebody like this, and if you don't know them, you I'm sure are that person, saying, we're going to get to our destination. I have a mission that I'm on. Ultimately, when she finally got to Rome, Monica found out that her son wasn't there anymore. But she wasn't deterred. She'd found out that he'd gone to another city, Milan. And so she promptly gathered everybody. She took the crew. She went all the way to Milan. She found her son. She found the local church. And she continued to live as a devout Christian woman. One of the local Christian leaders there in Milan, his name was Ambrose. Augustine would go to listen to. Augustine didn't actually care what Ambrose was saying, but Ambrose was really famous for his style of speech. And because Augustine lived as an orator and a teacher of rhetoric, he just wanted to listen to hear what Ambrose was saying. But one of the things that Augustine remembered, particularly about this time in his life, is that Ambrose knowing who Augustine was, would always come up to him and say, you know what, you have a really incredible, a really remarkable mother. One of the stories that would be told about Monica while she was up there, there was a common practice then, I'm sure some of you have heard this, in the churches that Monica was raised in, in Carthage, where you'd bring all your first fruits up to the altar. 
right? And that'd be kind of like whatever, your wheat, your barley, which sometimes be made into bread, your grapes, which again was sometimes made into wine. And the church would receive all these gifts in North Africa and other places, and then they would redistribute them to anybody who had need. But there had gotten to be this problem in the city of Milan where people would take all the gifts. If any of you have ever been a part of a food distribution, I'm sure this has never happened. And some people would kind of pilfer and run off with a lot of it and then throw a huge party. Everybody get drunk. So the church said, okay, we're not going to bring gifts to the altar anymore. You're just going to give alms directly to the church. Monica, one of the times that she was coming into the church to bring her gifts, which she had done every day faithfully since she was a little girl, was told this by somebody who was at the door. And I just feel like you get so much of the heart of, of Monica here. And rather than trying to object or refuse or say, you know, I'm bringing this here with pure intention, or this is the way I've always done it, I would probably identify with all those responses. Monica never did it again. And not only did she not do it, she became the most zealous person about telling people, hey, 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 we can't bring gifts to the altar. You have to give them directly to the poor. Reminds me so much of something like John 13 when Jesus is trying to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, oh, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus says, well, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part of me. And then Peter's like, okay, 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 don't wash just my feet, my whole body. Just hear something about the humility and the reverence all in that one moment. While Augustine and his mother would be there in Milan, Augustine started to get a fresh look at the scriptures that his mother had loved so much. And now in his 30s, Augustine's past and present indulgence in his lust, in his sinful desires that his mother had warned him about since he was a boy was starting to catch up with his conscience. In a moment of solitude, not unlike how his mother must have prayed for him all those years, Augustine sat under a fig tree and praying with tears that he might some way be delivered from this sin that had seemed to grip him so powerfully he couldn't get away from it. And one of the other things that I love about this moment in Augustine's life is just like that oracle that Monica had received. All those years ago in the dream that promised that Augustine would one, way, one day be with her, and from the Christian leader that she had gotten, the son of so many tears shouldn't perish, which Augustine, of course, had written off. Now Augustine's heart had been prepared for a similar experience of his own. Because as he agonized there, desiring to be freed, to be cleansed from all the sin that had seemed to persecute him, he heard a child's voice saying the words, Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. And Augustine, having nearby him the letters of Paul, would flip open to the passage that Indra read. And every prayer that Augustine's mother had prayed for him was caught up in the words of Paul in that moment. And Augustine would say that he felt light flood his soul. Shortly after he was baptized, Augustine retired from his secular career, his worldly ambitions, and he made plans with his mother and some of his friends to go back to Africa, back to in and around Carthage, to be able to preach the gospel there and live together in a Christian community. While they were waiting, they'd gotten from Milan to a port of Rome to go back to Africa. Augustine would have a conversation with his mother, and they were kind of contemplating, now that he was a faithful Christian, just thinking a little bit about eternity, about what it would be like to be before the throne of God, surrounded by all of his saints as we were just singing. 
And considering the incomparable glory of that and the way that all the pleasures of this earthly life would dim in light of that everlasting day, Monica said to Augustine, Son, for my own part, I now find delight. I find no delight in anything in this life. One thing there was for which I desired to linger a little while in this life, that I might see you a Christian before I died. God has granted me this, so what am I still doing here? Five days after that, Monica fell ill, and then she shortly after that went to be with the Lord. But Augustine would go on for the next 43 years to write some of the most influential works in the history of the church, explicating the brilliance, the truth, and the power to a culture that couldn't often grasp the grace of the gospel or, like the Manichaeans, all the things distorted. Many people say that it was only the Apostle Paul who was ultimately more influential in his writings than Augustine. And now that that path had been cleared by the end of Christian persecution and the Edict of Milan, the gospel could be communicated, translated, its story and the doctrine of that one and holy apostolic faith to the farthest corners of the world. In some sense, you could say that Augustine was the gasoline for the fire that had been stoked by Constantine. But as I told you, this story is really about two mothers. I feel like sometimes the blessed vocation of being a parent in our culture, which is often consumed with consumerism and driven by economic efficiencies. I mean, don't we, after all, pay people as little as possible to take care of children? Or give it to people who are retired or otherwise considered unproductive? How does holding a crying child solve the major issues that we face in our time? Often in modern secular history, you hear about all the, the, the people who matter or the people who did things, accomplished great feats, who deserved recognition, didn't all do it while they were taking care of children. And sometimes, at a superficial glance, the history of the church can look like it's the same thing. And part of that is inescapable. The Christian truth is often so scandalizing that it's not readily seen by those who aren't familiar with it. If you just do a quick glance at Augustine and Constantine, it reads like all the rest of history. Privileged men doing privileged things. But if, like the Gospels invite us, you actually come and see what's going on, you find deeper truth in Augustine and Constantine and Constantine's stories. Because all those battles that Constantine fights, the assassination attempts, the political scheming, his fearlessness, his initiative, his relentlessness, it's all the mature dividends of the gift of his mother's love for him. It wasn't immediate, sure, and God was still working in him all of those years. But it's unmistakable that none of what he would have been, the man capable of defying emperors and conspirators and uniting a collapsing empire, would have happened unless Helena fought daily battles with tantrums, crime, willfulness, self-doubt, dishonesty, and that same unceasing patience, hope, and love. Constantine the emperor was forged in Helena's humble motherhood. And ultimately, if you know the story, the history of the church on this matter, it's not Constantine who's held up as an example. I told you a little part of Constantine's life, but there's a lot of Constantine's life that's Constantine. 
He's kind of more one of those like Isaiah 45 Cyrus figures. It's kind of an instrument through which God works, but not necessarily somebody we should emulate. But his mother, even though she was mostly a believer later in life, is held up as an example because through her motherhood, God was able to set free his people in the Roman Empire and also through the gift of her later life, use all the resources of that empire that she had as access to give to the poor and to those who are in need, the imprisoned, the weak. Likewise, not many of you, I would imagine, haven't heard the name Augustine, the one who fights and contends for the battle once for all delivered to the saints, uncorrupted, undistorted. But Augustine makes even more clear what we see in Constantine's story. That he wouldn't have been Augustine. He wouldn't have even been converted if Monica, his mother, hadn't been Monica. Augustine is able to write as a Christian what so many wouldn't dare to write, so many of the great men throughout history. That Monica's long-suffering motherhood didn't give up on a vision of Augustine's life that was more than just climbing the social ladder or living into the cultural status quo. I'm convinced this morning that in these two women, we get to see the miracle of faith intersect with the miracle of motherhood. They never ceased or let sorrow or despair or bitterness or frustration finally stop them in loving their sons and in hoping that their sons would grow to become all that they could be. I think part of their story, maybe part of the whole story of the Christian saints, is not to underestimate the power of an unrecognized an unknown mother to change the course of the world. Who would have thought an unknown first century Jewish peasant woman could say the words, Lord, let it be unto me as you say, and bear the greatest gift creation would ever know. There's something I love, and I guess I can say this because I'm not one, and the humility that it takes to be a mother. Almost everything that you do is for the sake of someone who may never appreciate all that you've done for them, and a world that won't give you credit for anything other than a menial labor and tasks that an unskilled worker could do. But in the stories of Monica and Helena, I feel like we get to see that despite the world's tendency to spotlight celebrity, physical beauty, world-class skill, political ambition, the Lord takes what is lowly, what is despised, the things that are not, and through them brings to nothing the things that are, the things that can topple empires, spread faith throughout the four corners of the earth. The temptation sometimes, I think, when we look to past Christians is to see the consequence or the legacy of their lives and say, well, I'm never going to be that. But I feel like when you look closely and carefully at the stories of Monica and Helena, we also remember that they actually didn't have control of their legacies either. They only did day after day what seemed to care for the least of them, their infants, making sure that they were fed and that they were clothed and that they had a safe place to sleep. Helena didn't raise Constantine to faith. In fact, she came to faith after Constantine. And Monica failed to bring her son up in the faith. But in humility and in obedience, they believed the Lord would never stop working through them until their final breath, as long as they never gave up. And I feel like it's this incredible message that they give us. Not just as singly mothers, although I feel like it exemplifies it because all relationships in our human life come from that initial 
mother relationship. But I think it also asks us to see in the perspective of our lives that we'll never completely know or understand the legacy, the impact that we have on other people around us as long as we're willing to try to serve God and to be faithful to him day in and day out. This morning we're invited to a table that exemplifies the same kind of humble holiness. I'm not about to do some amazing, miraculous feat in front of you. And neither are you. But through the very love of God, something miraculous will happen here. As the very life of the Son that was broken, that was despised, that was cast aside for our sake, is made available right here. And it's a life that fills us exactly at that place that feels like it's overlooked or abandoned or unimportant or broken where God is able to bring forth such an abundance of his power and his life as to change the very landscape of history, if we are willing. So I hope this morning you'll come to the table with me, thankful for all those who have exhibited holiness in their lives exactly in the way that our Lord did, in obedience and in a humility strong enough and enduring enough to outlast the sin that seems to persist so strongly around us. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, just grateful this morning for being able to be called to these different stations, locations, the different ways that you make us, the different ways that you gift us, and knowing that you're able to take every area of our life and consecrate it unto you. Thankful for the gift of parents and for children, and for the kind of vision that it takes to have and to see all of our actions, not just as they reverberate in our lives, but throughout all of eternity, and the kind of consequence you can bear through um, just a little faithfulness and a little love extended persistently over time. We ask you, Lord, to allow us to come to this table in that spirit of faith and love, to receive the gifts of your Son who's broken for our sake, and allow that to help just send us out as your missionaries, persistent, steadfast, as patient, as humble, and ultimately, what it takes to be um, both a mother and um, to be a, a part of your household, your family, um, to be given to each other in relationships with a sense of hope about what you are doing in now and ultimately. We pray all this in your son's name.